0: God, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O oh Lord, our rock and our Redeemer. Amen. Isaiah chapter 40, verses 1 through 11. Comfort, O comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem, cry to her that she has served her term, that her penalty is paid, that she's received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain plain. Then the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all people shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says cry out and I said what shall I cry? All people are grass. Their constancy is like the flower of the field. The grass withers. The flower fades. when The breath of the Lord blows upon it. Surely the people are grass. The grass does wither, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. So get you up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good tidings. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good tidings. Lift it up, do not fear. Say to the cities of Judah, here is your God. See, the Lord comes with might and his arm rules for him. His reward is with him and his recompense before him, but he will feed his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms and carry them in his bosom, and gently lead the mother sheep. Friends, this is the word of God, for us the people of God. Thanks be to God. So much of uh, the Hebrew scriptures, Old Testament, First Testament, There's challenges with all those things. First two thirds of what we consider the Bible as Christians um, often requires some contextualization for us, right? If you've ever found yourself, especially in the Old Testament, flipping through and trying to understand who's saying what, to when, where, I don't really understand, how does this fit? You find yourself in that place a lot in the Psalms, in the prophets. Um, There's an assumed history, an assumed story that's taking place and if you're not quite oriented, you often lose a little bit of the punch in what's happening here. And so this morning before I simply really just tell you what I just told you, uh, I wanna help you contextualize what we just heard. And uh, this was actually pointed out to me this week. I'm almost embarrassed that i would never kind of been able to say it this simply. Uh, But Sam Wells, who I talk about frequently here, former dean of Duke Chapel, uh, as he was kind of working through this text, he he pointed out something really simple that helped me and may help you. He said, when you come to the Old Testament, uh, many of us, most of us would know that the central character there, besides God, is Israel, right, is the people of God. And we know that story. Um, And most of us uh, know the story of Israel being freed from slavery in Egypt, and that's one of the dominant stories when it comes to the life of God's people in the Old Testament. Israel is a big deal as far as it relates to Israel being freed from slavery. We know that story, that's the first story. But there's a second story that takes place throughout the Old Testament. It's one that we're less familiar with. And so whenever you're reading a text, you're kind of wondering which of these two stories is this commentary on, right? Is this commentary on the days in which Israel found themselves by nothing of their own doing, but unjustly enslaved to an oppressive empire? And and through that story, we learn something really beautiful about God and God's character, that God's the kind of God who hears the cries of the oppressed who acts on their behalf, who frees them from slavery, who liberates them, and sets them on a path to a land of plenty and promise and flourishing. And that's the story of Israel that we love. It's the story we come back to again and again. Um, It's it's the story that many of us are familiar with because if you've ever done the Read the Bible in a Year plan, you get to that story in the second book, right? Uh, Exodus is the story of this. The second Story around Israel that we encounter in the Hebrew scriptures again and again and again is one we're less familiar with. The second context for Israel's life is their exile in Babylon. And so, uh, essentially, what happens is, Israel is freed from slavery, God leads them through the desert, 40 years, they enter the promised land, they begin to flourish, and then the question is, what will they do with their freedom? And sadly, they walk away from God. They walk away from God's ways. They find other political alliances and allegiances. They begin to have other values of how maybe God gave us this freedom, but we want to protect it in a different sort of way, which leads to oppression. They begin to ignore the widow and the orphan and the poor. They begin to live in ways contrary to what God had set them on a path to be, right? And so as a consequence of their own failure to live out the truth of of their story, In the face of the world, they ultimately uh, suffer. Their story fractures. It it, it falls apart. Their integrity and the strength of their nation uh, dissolves, and they're conquered by an outside force, Babylon. And their city is ruined, and they are exiled to the furthest regions of that area. Right? They're cut off from their place, from their God, from their worship, from their home, from their families. They're sent away. And they live in exile, weeping and mourning over everything that had been lost and the failure of their life together. Now, Samuel says that part of the reason why we, and especially Church on Morgan type folks, we really like the Israel-Egypt story is because we place ourselves in the story of Israel, and we go, yeah, I've been treated unfairly. I hate injustice, and I like that God comes on behalf of folks like me and takes care of folks like them, right? The, the Egypt Israel story, for many of us, it makes us feel righteous when we read it. This is the kind of story we can get behind. But when it comes to the story of Israel living in exile, being conquered by Babylon, the the voice of Scripture is like singular in this regard. You find in the book of Kings, in Jeremiah, in Ezekiel, uh, here in Isaiah, again and again and again, everyone's in agreement that they are. Israel is also suffering in this moment, but unlike that first story, they're suffering here because they've, um, their own failures. This is a self-inflicted discomfort. It didn't have to be this way, right? That the pain and the lostness and the wandering and the brutality of what they're experiencing is just a natural consequence of the decisions they made. And when we get to those kind of stories in the scripture, we're like, is there a different option for this week? You know, I like the one where we're the good guys, they're the bad guys, God comes and joins us. I don't like the stories that sound like part of the suffering you're experiencing in your life may have to do with some terrible decisions that you've made. That, that's who these people are. And Israel's been in exile for 70 years, living with the horror of the mistakes that they made and all that they needlessly gave up. And so it's in that moment, in in that wilderness, that this text shows up in Advent. Not to people who were being unjustly treated for nothing that they did and God's coming to them, but for people who had made a real mess of their life and lost a lot in the process. God shows up to those people 70 years detached from their home, themselves, their community, honestly their God, and says, I have a message for my people and I want you to take it to them. These people who've made a mess of what I handed them. This is a passage for those who are in the desert. I love this quote I saw this week by T.S. Eliot who says that um, the desert is not just a place in the southern tropics, it's a place in our hearts. That you don't have to be living exiled as part of a national group, right, to know what exile is. That all of us have a little exile that we're walking with in our own life. The exile isn't just in the desert, it's not just southern tropics, it's a place inside of us. A place where we feel cut off from ourselves, where we feel a thousand miles away from whatever home we once imagined. We feel cut off from from our God, from our people, from ourselves. That we can't look in the mirror, or when we do, we don't even recognize ourselves anymore. There's... To us in this room, I imagine a a spectrum of exile that's taking shape inside of you. Some of us, it's small, some of us, it's all-encompassing. The questions of could I ever get back? What would ever happen? How could I ever recover from the decisions I made? How could the relationships that I find myself in ever be restored? How could I ever find myself in a church again, given what I've been a part of? Every year, about this time in Advent, We find ourselves in these stories of exile and longing and ache and um, wondering if there's any way you can go back home again, right? Um, Every year that I find myself in this moment, I'm immediately reminded of the greatest Christmas movie of all time, which I think we can all agree is Home Alone. (laughs) And uh, every year, I entertain all week long, can I get away with showing a six-minute Home Alone clip, (laughs) even if it means we don't have room for you people because we have to... And I really wanted to do it. I even thought about letting you just watch it backwards because it's so good. But um, let me tell you why Home Alone's the best Christmas movie of all time, best Advent movie, honestly, Advent movie. And it's not just because that any three or four year old can watch this and howl with laughter. Um, that you can watch it a hundred times and it never gets old. That there's a there's just so much about it I love. Um, but. The moment that I think we often forget where this is actually a pretty deep story. There's something remarkable happening in the narrative that that you've probably forgotten, and I'm gonna kind of reorient us here for just a second, but um, remember that this is a picture of exile, that Kevin himself is living a little bit of exile. He is alone. He is cut off from his people. He got there through some rough decisions he made. He had a throwdown with his family. It led to them saying some things. He was like, look, I hate you, I don't love you, I don't wanna go with you, I hope I never see you again, whatever, storms off into the uh, attic where just like the coolest house ever. But he's up there, right? Somehow they leave him, he's all alone, people are coming for him. He's been by himself for a couple of days, it comes time for Christmas. He, he needs like a little moment of peace before he has to defend his life and his home, right? And so he goes to this church and there's a choir that's rehearsing, and he walks in by himself, and he sits in this pew, and he sits down, and he's just reflecting on his life. This little seven-year-old Macaulay Culkin, right? And as he's sitting there, this older gentleman comes in. You remember this guy? I can't even remember his name. It's like, I think they call him Old Man Marley, but he, um, He's the guy that he sees through the windows that the whole neighborhood's afraid of. He's got the shovel. It's an ominous dude. People think he's burying bodies or he's doing something. Nobody wants to talk to him. Well, Kevin's sitting in the pew and this old man walks down the aisle and he taps Kevin and asks if he can sit with him. And Kevin's just like, oh my gosh, shocked, right? And he's like, I guess. So he sits down. Are you with me in the scene yet? Have we found our place? Okay. Okay, so he says to Kevin, um, have you been a, just to get the conversation going, have you been a good boy this year? And Kevin says, yeah, I think so. And he says, would you swear on it? And he goes, no. <laughs> and he goes, I didn't think so, right? And he goes, well, I think this is a good place to be when you don't feel great about yourself. And, uh, and Kevin says to him, well, do you not feel good about yourself? He's like, no, I feel fine. It's like, okay. And so Kevin opens his confessional and he just begins to share and he says, well, you know, I said some things to my family that I really didn't mean. But family, you know, it's like, I know deep down that I love them, but sometimes I don't feel like I love them. Sometimes I'm not even sure that I do love them, but I know that I love them, but I I said some things and I feel bad about it. And, And in the fruit of Kevin's own confession, old man Marley cracks open a little bit. And he goes, well, you know why I'm here? He's like, no, why are you here? I came to listen to my granddaughter sing, as she's rehearsing, because I can't come tonight for her performance. And he says, why can't you come? You got a conflict? What's going on that you can't be here? He's like, no, I don't have a conflict. But 20 years ago, her father, my son, and I, we had, a, we had a hard conversation. And I told him I never wanted to see him again, and he said the same to me. And so this is the only way I get to experience my granddaughter's coming and sitting in here now. And he says, well, why don't you just, like, ask him? Like, you know, he's like, I'm afraid he wouldn't take me back. And he goes, aren't you a little old to be afraid, right? He's like, I don't think you're ever too old to be afraid. See, you wanna go and watch this movie. This is like, (laughs) Home Alone is a story of two souls living in exile. The fruit of their own decision, suffering the consequences, wishing there was any way to get the family back to once again be a part of the thing, but it seems like there's zero path or opportunity. I mean, How many of us, it's an uncomfortable thing, we'd rather think about the injustice that other people are inflicting on folks in the world today, but I, I wonder if for just a moment you would entertain the possibility that there's some exile that you find yourself in as a result of some of your own decisions, ways in which you've failed yourself and your family and, your God in some regard that you've, you've been less than you knew you could have been and should have been and you find yourself on the margin, exiled from a marriage or a friendship or a community that deep down you know you wanna be a part of but you just have long given up on. That's, that's where Isaiah's speaking to. Isaiah's talking to Kevin and to old man Marley To Israel, who's been in exile for 70 years, not because of anyone else's doing, but their own failures. To all of us who find ourselves lost, wandering in the desert, knowing that's not just a place in the tropics, but in our heart, right? (laughs) And so, this, one of the most beautiful passages in all of scripture that I think really puts on display the heart of God. Isaiah discerns deeply this is what God would have God's messenger say to God's people. Comfort, oh comfort my people, says your God. Now, I don't need to go into the serial list of everything that they'd screwed up and all the poor decisions they made, but let's just put your own story in there. Here's kind of um, what I think the genius, one, my hot take on the genius of this text is. So God like preemptively like uh, takes down all their objections before they have a chance to even voice them in this like most rousing speech. For those of us who find ourselves cut off, maybe cut off for years or decades even from the people and the places that we love in some regard or the the hopes we had for our life. Part of our kind of internal monologue sounds something like this. Um, the amount of damage that I created, the amount of hurt that's taken shape both inside of me and on the other side of me is so significant it it could never be made well. It could never be made well. And even if there was some future hope that it could be made well, the distance from where I am right now to where we would need to go to get there is so far and treacherous I I don't think I could make the journey. The amount of obstacles, the conversations, the the renegotiation of all these moments and terms, it's it's so impossible that even if there was the promise of restoration and healing, the, the journey is too intense to even imagine. And let's just say someone actually had a plan for me and could say to me, there is a way back and here's what you need to do. Deep down inside, I just think, to be honest with you, I'm so exhausted, I'm so tired, I couldn't even make the journey if I knew there was one. I'm too tired to make it back. And let's say that there was healing possible, that there was a path back, that I somehow could find the strength to make it, I still don't think I could ever live with myself. I I don't think I could ever look them in the eye. I don't think they'd be ever able to look me in the eye. There's so much shame that would just be here forever, that even if you could assume all those things, it isn't worth it. And it's in that space, that interior space, that some of us know that Isaiah says this, tell my people as to the damage and the hurt and the consequences that she has served her term, that her penalty's paid. And you know, sometimes when we read the scriptures, especially, we got to remember, these are people making sense out of their own experience of God. And uh, not everything is meant to be read literally. Most theologians, when they work with uh, the punishment that we experience, the suffering that we experience on the other side of our kind of poor choices and the ways that we dehumanize ourselves and others, most, most theologians wouldn't believe that, that God is actually the one punishing it's just that like consequences are pre-packaged, pre-wired into those sorts of decisions. That when, when we kind of begin to tear our own humanity apart and others, there's pain and suffering just built into the system of that, right? This doesn't have to be about God inflicting punishment. It's just saying, you've suffered enough. The hurt's been enough. It's been enough on you, it's been enough on others. The damage has been done, but your time is served. The penalty is paid. We can move on from there. And I hear you that like there's too many obstacles and conversations and rivers to cross and mountains to climb, but here's what I wanna tell you, that I'm preparing the way for you. A desert in a highway where every valley will be lifted up and every mountain will be made low and the uneven ground shall become level. I'm making the path home smooth. It won't be as hard as you think. Samuel says, it's like like God saying, I'm I'm charting kind of the Blue Ridge Parkway through the mountains for you. I'm gonna make this an easy walk home. I don't even think I can make it on a highway. That's how tired I am. The prophet says, I know, people are grass. We wither, we fall apart. We're like a flower that fades. But later in this passage, he goes on to tell them, but those who wait on God... He'll renew their strength. They'll mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. God says, I'm going to carry you back myself. You're not going to do this on your own strength. You've paid enough. The pathway's smooth. I'll carry you if I have to. I don't think I could face it. I don't think I could face those people again. Three times in these short 11 verses, God says, look, 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 look. One of my favorite preachers always does this, and I can't tell if I like it or hate it, but he's always like, look up here, look at me, look right here, and I'm always like, I am looking at you, but whatever. This is what God's doing. He's saying, look up here, look me in the eyes. I wanna, I'm talking to you. I need you to see my face. Lift your head from your shoes to my face. You need to see something right now. You know that I'm mighty and powerful. Got it, I am. But you might miss what kind of might I bring. I'm the might of a shepherd who longs to pick up his sheep, carry them in her bosom, right? God says, you need to see the delight in my eyes again. There will be great rejoicing at your homecoming. So, home alone, it's got some great moments. But when Kevin's mom walks in that door, and they have that reunion, and the squeals of delight, there's no speech, I'm so sorry, I did it, it's just, we are I can't, yes. When he looks through the slats of the window and he sees old man Marley celebrating Christmas with his son, there's a homecoming happening. Advent is a season of homecoming. That's what it's about. You know, we, sometimes we out slick ourselves in the church. We get a little too fancy with these things. When I was at Duke, I had an internship at a rural uh, United Methodist church uh, shout out Walnut Grove if you're listening. And um, it was such a treat to be a part of a community like that. A community that had been there for decades and surrounded by you know, headstones and a graveyard that the kids ran through and played on every Sunday where we had Brunswick stew festivals and l- giant potlucks and all the rest. One of my favorite traditions in and, and <clears throat> that church, and maybe some of you grew up this way, you know about this, but it was homecoming service. Every year, usually on the date that the church was founded or whatever, they'd have a homecoming service, and everybody knew it, and it's the same date every year, so everybody knows when it's coming, and the idea is, if you've been gone from the church, now that's often like we moved to California, but this church was where I grew up, you'd come home on homecoming Sunday, and everybody's there to celebrate together, but it's also deeper than that. It's a sense in which if you have done something, that you felt like disqualified you from our community that cut you off, that you couldn't face people anymore, that there was something that was known about you, there was something inside of you, there was something you did you couldn't live with even if nobody else knew. Homecoming Sunday is a Sunday where everybody comes back and we join and we remind each other that that you're already home, you're already welcome back, that, that the penalty's been paid, that you've suffered enough, that it doesn't have to be that complicated, that we'll carry you back if we have to. I I've, I've been wondering about this, especially here at Church on Morgan, even in our short tenure, how many people have just sadly, I think, been churned up in the first 10 years who've kind of like, we miss seeing, they're not around anymore. Maybe they've been gone so long they just feel like they can't come back because it'd be weird at this point. I'm kind of like, how do we begin to put the practice in place that says, um, because of your own actions or lack thereof, nothing in between, whatever, this The doors are open, you are welcome home. Please come see the delight on our face. Advent is a season of homecoming. I can't tell you how much it has meant to my soul to be in one of those dark places where I've known I've totally screwed up and wondering if there was any possible way to move forward, at least with these people or in this place, and to have some faithful person offer these kind of good news to me right? I mean, it's like one of the the greatest comforts in this life. This is why we say it's the good news. By the way, that's what I'm supposed to be doing right now. Not necessarily teaching, which, you know, I'll pick a bone with my folks who raised me who thought this was about teaching. This is preaching, which is proclamation, which is good news. I'm just here to tell you news. I'm a journalist. I want to give you some news, and it's good. Here's the news, and it's good. You wonder what God wants to say to you in the midst of your muck? God wants to say, comfort. Comfort my people. Tell them to come home. Tell them to come home. And last, I'll say, church, I'm this isn't just a message that's spoken to you. Maybe even better, this is a message that wants to be spoken through you. As good as it has been to receive that grace at some point in my life, it has been an even greater joy to offer it to somebody else. It's one of the real privileges of this work that I do, that I get to regularly sit in front of people who can't look me in the eye and tell them, you're welcome home. You've paid enough. You've suffered enough. I don't need all the excuses. We don't have to come up with a 15-step plan. God will carry us through this. Come home. Of all the things that John the Baptist could have said. Announcing that Jesus was on the way, he quotes this text. He says, prepare the way of the Lord. He's quoting Isaiah. He's quoting this passage that had meant profound homecoming and saying the good news is about to happen. The one that we've been waiting for is coming and we're all coming home. Prepare the way. And then he goes on to say, and so repent and believe the good news of the gospel. And often when we hear that, we hear somebody on a sidewalk or a soapbox yelling, get your act together, repent. And I'm not going to deny that there's probably some piece of that in there, but sometimes our words kind of fail us. We need to shake them loose a little bit. The, The word repent just means to return John the Baptist says, prepare the way of the Lord, which is a homecoming for all of us. He's saying, come on home, repent, come on home, return, come back, come home. This is the message that John the Baptist starts with. It's it's the way in Mark's gospel today, in Mark chapter one, he says, here's the beginning of the good news of Jesus. It's what Isaiah said, that God is preparing a way home for us. Welcome home. Come home to God Come home to your people. Come home to yourself. It's it's if you listen deeply and longly enough, you will hear it in all your favorite artists and poets. This week I was reminded of Mary Oliver's most famous poem, uh, Wild Geese, where she says, you don't have to crawl on your knees through the desert for a hundred miles, constantly repenting. Come home. This is the good news of the gospel, this is the invitation of Advent. May you know the joy of hearing that and offering that to those who need to hear it most. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen.